We shall now turn to the chapter which we read together, Romans chapter 8, and our text for tonight is verse 16. Romans 8 and verse 16. The Spirit itself, or rather himself, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So tonight the subject that I would like to bring before you is that of assurance. And that's a very important subject. There are some people and for years they are striving for assurance and they seem to not get it. Some have assurance that shouldn't have assurance, of course. And then there are others who have a very weak assurance, and some have very strong assurance. But assurance is something that we all need, and it brings great blessing. I myself, in my teenage years, I struggled, struggled greatly with the question of assurance. I wanted to know that I was in the elect. Christ died for the elect. Christ saved the elect. I wanted to, to know that I was amongst them. People said, just believe, just trust in Christ. But how could I believe in Christ if he hadn't died for me? How could I trust my salvation to him in that situation? So I struggled for for years with this doubt and darkness and fear and a sense of perhaps, perhaps I'm going to end up in hell. Maybe I'm lost. Maybe there's no hope for me. And then I remember the, the wonderful joy, the overflowing love in my heart when the assurance came and when I knew that God loved me, that Christ died for me, and that his Spirit was dwelling in my heart. Some people lose their assurance. Some people have no right to assurance. They might be Christians, and yet they've got no right to assurance. Why? Because they're backslidden. Because they've allowed some sin in their life. Maybe they're, they've become addicted to drink or drugs. Maybe they get involved in immorality. They had started off well, but they're tolerating sin in their life. And the one who tolerates open sin in their life has no right to think of themselves as Christians. They may be, but Jesus said, by their fruits he shall know them, and their fruit is an evil fruit. Others of God's children are tried from time to time by a withdrawing of God's spirit, of assurance, the comfort of assurance. And for a time, the felt presence is absent. And that's a terrible trial. We think of Job. 
in Old Testament times. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might order my case before him, that I would tell him what I'm going through, that I would speak to him, that I would find out why he's sending these terrible things to me, why I'm suffering so much. Where are you, Lord? It was hard for him, but it was there for his good. God was testing him in order to strengthen his faith. It can be difficult. I remember one old elder that I knew, and he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And as he was coming towards the end of his life, his assurance disappeared. And he was struggling. He was really tried and tested. He wondered, am I lost? Do I have anything? Several times I visited him and there was just this darkness, this fear, terrified at the thought of death, feeling unprepared for death. Thankfully, in God's grace, that passed away. And when it came to the end of his life, there was peace and there was joy and there was assurance. But it was a hard trial while it lasted. Are you a Christian? Do you have assurance of your salvation? Do you know where you're going when you die? If you died tonight, would you open your eyes in heaven? It's a wonderful thing to have assurance. And the scripture tells us, give diligence. To make your calling and election sure. Well, the first point that I'd like to make tonight is that you can be a true Christian and yet not have assurance. Some people argue that assurance enters into the essence of faith. That assurance is part of faith. And the reformers would seem to have been of that idea, Luther and Calvin. But then you have to remember the particular time when they lived. They lived at a time when they had separated from the Church of Rome. And the Church of Rome said assurance is impossible. It was seen as, if you said you had assurance, that was something to be anathematized, anathematized by the Council of Trent. Anyone who dared claim that they had assurance of their salvation because the Church of Rome wanted to keep you dependent upon themselves, dependent upon the priest and the church. And you had to go regularly for uh, confession and for mass and you had to fulfill all that the church laid down and then maybe at the end of the day, if you didn't fall away and commit some mortal sin, you would get to heaven after spending a time in purgatory, of course. But the reformers, they asserted that assurance is possible and maybe went a little too far in saying that assurance is almost necessary. 
They wanted to assert the truth of assurance as presented in Scripture. Modern Arminians tend to be of this opinion. They say, you make a decision. You say the sinner's prayer. Now, you're a Christian. Never doubt it again. It's a sin to doubt it. Don't ever doubt it. You're a Christian. And just believe that you're a Christian. And so if they come across somebody who's doubting that they're Christians, they think that they're not Christians at all. Because for them, assurance is part of faith. But the trouble, the trouble with these modern evangelicals is that their decision is often a superficial decision. It's a decision of the will. It's a decision that you can take going forward at a campaign, repeating a prayer after somebody. Has there been the new birth? Has the individual been regenerated? Has there been repentance, true repentance unto life? Has there been faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Sadly, so often there hasn't been. How many people I've come across over the years who at one time made a decision and some indeed who said once a Christian, always a Christian. I became a Christian 20 years ago and even although I'm living in sin today, I know I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. And they're deluding themselves. Deceiving themselves. So that's the superficial decision, taking it as true conversion. But there are others who are obviously converted. Their lives have been changed. Their attitude is one of looking to Calvary. Trusting in the Lord, praying to God and depending upon him, following the Lord. They're obviously born again, but they're full of doubts and full of fears. <coughs> Sometimes they're looking for another experience. Maybe some, some light to shine from heaven. Some voice to speak to them, assuring them. Or maybe they're thinking that to be a Christian you have to go through a certain experience. For example, my own grandmother, she had a very dramatic conversion. She felt that for a considerable period of time she was, as it were, shaken over the pit of hell. She was feeling this terrible conviction of sin. This terrible fear of hell. The awfulness of a lost condition and a lost eternity. And then after a period of almost despair, she found peace. And so she used to think that nobody could be a true Christian unless they went through the same deep experience of conviction of sin and misery and despair. Now my mother had been converted as a child but in a very gentle way. 
drawn by the love of Christ. And so for many, many years, till she was about the age of 50, she had no assurance of salvation because she was comparing herself to her own mother. There's always dangers in listening to testimonies. There's dangers that we could be looking for the experience that other people have and expecting them in our own lives. And if we are expecting these things so often, the Lord will not give it to us. He doesn't give us what we expect. God's not predictable. God always takes us by surprise. God always has his own way of dealing for it. And so it was with myself looking for certain things to give me assurance, things which never happened. So, our first point then tonight is that you can be a true Christian and not have assurance. You can be on the road to heaven and full of doubts and fears. So the fact that there's doubts and fears in your heart shouldn't lead you to the conclusion that you're not a Christian. So how then can, in the second place, how can we know that we are true Christians? How can we come to full assurance of salvation? And here I would like to make three points. First, there's the use of what's called the syllogism. Now, we have to explain that, of course. A syllogism is a couple of truths followed by a conclusion based on that truth. A process in logic. But let me explain. Philippine jailer asked a question, what must I do to be saved? Paul answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So taking that passage, we have the syllogism. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I believe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am saved. Or to use another verse, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I call upon the name of the Lord, therefore I must be saved. The one that I find most helpful for myself is John six thirty seven. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. God says in his word, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Lord, I am coming to you, therefore you won't cast me out. Maybe I never came to you before, but Lord, I come to you today. Therefore, I can be assured on the basis of the promise of Scripture. We come to the Lord in prayer. And coming to the Lord in prayer, we know he will not reject us because that's what he said. We come to the Lord casting ourselves upon him. We give our heart to him. We take him into our heart and we are saved. 
And so you have then this simple procedure of logic, or syllogism as it's called. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Lord, I come to you. I know you won't cast me out. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, I call upon your name. I pray to you. There's nobody who seriously prays to the Lord for salvation who will end up in hell. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I believe, therefore I will be saved. So that's a syllogism. The second way in which we come to assurance is by means of marks of grace. Marks of grace. When you become a Christian, you're a changed person. You're different. You're converted. You're born again. You're a new creature. So that must show itself in your life. It's a huge change. Once you were dead, now you're alive. Dead to God. Now you're alive to God. Dead in your sins. Now you're no longer dead in your sins but you're fighting against sin. So you can't be a Christian without being different. It shows in your life. And so it was with the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2. You have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You left your idols behind. So you must be now Christians. You've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've turned to God from idols what a change. You now have new interests. And so there are these marks of grace. By their fruits ye shall know them. You bear different fruits now from what you once bore. And these fruits tell that you're a Christian. One of the most helpful passages in dealing with marks of grace is the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, a great sermon of Christ to his people, to his church. And he begins the sermon by declaring who are the citizens of the kingdom, who are his people, who are the blessed ones. Because you see, there's only two categories, the blessed and the cursed. And tonight everyone here is either blessed or cursed. So are you blessed or cursed? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you poor in spirit? The Pharisee, he's not poor in spirit. He's thinking, well, I'm quite a good person. I try hard. I go to church. I say my prayers. I read my Bible. I try my best. I'm kind to my neighbor. I'm a good family person. But the true Christian cries out, my leanness, my leanness. What a poor person I am. What a failure I am. I'm nothing like what I should be. I wish I was a better person. I'm so poor spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or you take the second beatitude, blessed are they that mourn. 
Now this is not talking about mourning over people who die. It's talking about mourning over being poor in spirit. Mourning over your sins. So you look into your heart and you see, well, yes, I hate sin. I grieve over it. It causes me great sadness. I'm mourning over it. But blessed are they that mourn. Do you mourn over sin? Do you have that godly sorrow that works repentance not to be repented of? Or the third beatitude, blessed are the meek. Are you a meek person? A humble person? The Pharisee is proud, but the true Christian is meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Are you hungering and thirsting and longing for righteousness and to be right with God? And is that something very important to you? To be right with God on a right standing with God? Hungering and thirsting for it. Well, take comfort. That's a mark of the child of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, that's a bit difficult, isn't it? Pure in heart. Alas, alas, alas. My heart's so so lacking in purity. Ah, but what is meant by it? Blessed are... They that are concerned about purity of heart. The Pharisee, the hypocrite, is concerned about looking good in the sight of others. But the true Christian is troubled about the sins of the heart, the sins of the thought, the sins of intent. And similarly we have the passage in Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. The fruit of the Spirit. Where the Spirit has come to reside, where somebody has been born again, it shows. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love to God. Is there love in my heart to God? Or do I hate him? and his law, and his demands, and his judgments. Do I love his word? Do I love his day? Do I love his people? Joy. Some people think that the Christians are miserable people. But Christians are people who have joy. Great joy. Joy, actually, which is unspeakable and full of glory. Wonderful joy. Do you have joy? Joy particularly in your religion. Joy in your God. Joy in his word. Joy in his house. Joy in his worship. Do you delight in these things? There's a great mark of grace. Peace. A wonderful thing peace is. How many people around us have no peace? They have a troubled conscience. But we have peace in our conscience because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We have peace with our God and we have peace with our neighbour and we have peace with our circumstances. Godliness with peace. Godliness with contentment. 
is great gain. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Peace in your heart. These are marks of a Christian. Long-suffering, bearing with, bearing with the troubles, the trials, the difficulties, the problems, not getting angry with God, not even getting angry with your fellow man. Long-suffering, endurance, and steadfastness. These are then marks of grace. Or you think of what John said in his in his first epistle. We know, he said, that we have passed from death unto life. Why? We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. We love the Lord's people. We love them despite their faults. We love them, although they're awkward at times and difficult. Yet we love them. And we love them because they're the Lord's people. And they're part of our family. And God is our Father. And they're our brothers and sisters. And we're going to spend eternity with them. So, there we have another mark. Great mark of the Christian. So then, we're not perfect Far from it. We're sinners. But there's marks of grace. Look for these marks of grace and find encouragement in them. But then, thirdly, the syllogism, the marks of grace, and thirdly, the witness of the Spirit. And that's what's before us in this verse, the witness of God's Spirit in verse 16. If the. Eh, verse 16, no, it's not verse 16. It's. Uh, yes, yes, sorry. I was looking at the wrong chapter. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, there we have. The third, and in a sense, the most essential, the most essential matter as far as assurance is concerned. The syllogism is okay as far as it goes. The marks of grace help to some extent, but we need the witness of the Spirit. And when we have the witness of the Spirit, then we have the Holy Spirit testifying to our own spirits, assuring our spirits that we are God's children. Now, how does this witness take place? Is it directly on the soul? Or is it indirectly through things like the marks of grace? And theologians argue on these points. Is it mediate or immediate? Mediated through the marks of grace and the syllogism. Or is it immediate, direct from the Spirit upon your soul? Well, I would take it that we are to understand it in both ways. Not either or, but both. 
the Spirit uses the syllogism and assures us, I come to Christ. The word of God says, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. The Spirit enables us to grasp hold of that. Therefore, I am a child of God. We look into our hearts and we search for marks of grace and we see there, yes, that poor in spirit, that mourning for sin, that meekness, that hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that purity of heart. We see these things there and the Spirit helps us to see them. So there's that side of it, the Spirit using these things, but there's also a direct a direct effect upon our hearts. The witness of the Spirit directly with us. I come from the island of Lewis and brought up there, the island of Lewis, um, there was a word that was used for this. In Gaelic, of course, because uh, traditionally in Lewis, Gaelic was the language. And the word that was used was the word So there would be somebody seeking after the Lord, striving to find the Lord under concern of soul. And then they come to Sersha. They get their Sersha. They get freedom. They get liberty. They get assurance. And what is that but the witness of the Holy Spirit with our spirit that we are the child of God? I remember so clearly in my own experience the night when, after all the striving and struggling and searching and looking, the peace of God came into my heart. So dramatically, so unexpectedly. People would say to me, well, do you love the Lord? And I would find it sometimes difficult to say I do because well, if the Lord's sending me to hell, it's very hard to, to say I love him. But then, one day, the truth came with power and conviction to my heart that God loved me and that Christ died for me, that I was a Christian. My heart was flooded with love for God Flooded with joy, flooded with peace. It came suddenly and unexpectedly. But no doubt with others it can come more gradually. I'm not laying down my experience as a judge for any. But this is what we, yes, what we should be looking for. And looking for to a greater and greater extent that we would enjoy the full assurance of salvation the very thing that this verse speaks to us about the spirit himself witnesseth with our spirit that we are the children of God enabling us to cry Abba Father God is no longer my enemy no longer the judge who will condemn me and cast me into hell. But God is my Father. My Father who loved me from all eternity, chose me to be his own, sent a son to die for me on the cross, 
and sent his spirit into my heart, bringing me to faith and assurance and peace. It's a wonderful thing when the light dawns. When the assurance comes, it can come in different ways. Sometimes a verse of scripture comes before a person's mind and they find peace. Sometimes they may be listening to a sermon and the light dawns. Sometimes they may be singing a song and it's made precious. I remember my closest friend at university and he came under conviction of sin and concern of soul. And then one day in the open air we were standing there and we were singing Psalm 23 and he couldn't sing. But suddenly he began to sing and to sing at the top of his voice. Psalm 23 was made precious to him and the assurance of salvation came in upon his soul. There's all these different ways in which the Lord can do it. Maybe you're simply praying to the Lord and the peace of God and the assurance comes. The witness of the Spirit, witnessing with our spirit that we are the children of God. Well, in conclusion, we are to seek assurance. Peter said, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Why did he put it in that way? Your calling and election. Remember I said at the beginning of the sermon how I was looking and searching, am I in the elect? Well, that was the wrong way round. Peter says, give diligence to make your calling sure. And then you'll know that you're in the elect. We cannot possibly know we're in the elect unless we respond to the effectual calling. And it's as we respond to the gospel call that we know we have been elected from all eternity. Make your calling sure. And then you'll know you're in the elect of God. Yes, it can be a big problem for some. And we can get bogged down by looking inside ourselves. Looking and looking and looking for some good thing in us. For as in us dwelleth no good thing. We have to concentrate more on the cross of Christ. Look to Calvary. Look to Jesus. Will any perish who are looking to the cross, who are claiming the cross, who are putting their trust in the cross of Christ? No, definitely not. If you have some assurance, be thankful for it. But don't be content with your assurance. Keep on looking for more. Examine yourself whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourself whether you be in the faith and prove, and prove to yourself, yes, and prove to others that you have been converted, born again, and saved by the grace of God. Beware of superficial assurance. 
the Pharisees had plenty assurance. But it was an assurance based upon their works, not upon the cross of Christ. What is your assurance based upon? I try my best. I do what I can. I'm not a bad person. I often have heard it. How shocked I've been at times talking to old adherents to hear them say, well, I'm trying my best. And I think to myself, well, have you ever heard anything that I've been preaching year after year after year? Don't put any faith whatsoever in what you have done. Put all your faith in what Christ has done. Look to Calvary. Be aware of the danger of deception. And then there's another danger. There are some people, and they seem to have a clear understanding of the gospel. And they'll say to you, yes, I'm a Christian. Jesus died on the cross to save sinners and I trust in Jesus, so I'm saved. And yet, there doesn't seem any fruit in their lives. There doesn't seem to be any change. It's all so superficial. They have this kind of intellectual understanding of the gospel. But they don't have any experimental understanding. Where's the repentance? Now, repentance is not something you did 20 years ago. Repentance is something we do every day. And faith, again, faith is not something you did 20 years ago. Faith is something we do every day. Believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, repenting daily and putting our faith in him. That's the way we're to live. We live by faith. Every day putting our faith afresh in Christ. And when you do that, you have a living faith. But if you just take it that, well, I became a Christian so many years ago and that's it. That's the end of it. No, no, no. A Christian is somebody who has a living repentance, a living faith. A living experience of God. We believe in experimental Christianity. That means an ongoing experience of God. Not a superficial, intellectual kind of faith. So make sure you're not trusting in some kind of intellectual faith. But live a devout life, a loving life, a committed life, an enthusiastic and zealous life. Live in prayer. Live in the word of God. Live in the means of grace. Be growing in grace. And as you grow in grace, you will also grow in assurance of your salvation. And if you're here tonight, and you don't have Christ as your saviour, and you're unconverted, let tonight be the night in which you turn to the Lord. Cry to him for mercy. 
Look to the cross tonight. Christ is willing to receive sinners. He's willing to receive you. Come to Christ. Ask him to be your saviour. Ask him to come into your life. Ask him to make you into a new person. Put your trust in him and you'll be saved. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee for this glorious gospel of God's redeeming grace. We thank thee for the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, in assurance and sanctification, and perseverance, and union with Christ, and glorification. Grant, O Lord, that the Spirit would work in us each one, and that we would each one of us know what it is to be true Christians. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Our final praise is Psalm 73 and sing in verses 24 to 28. Psalm 73 verses 24 to 28. Thou with thy counsel while I live wilt me conduct and guide and to thy glory afterward Receive me to abide. Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone? And in the earth whom I desire, besides thee there is none. So we'll sing verses 24 to 28. Thou with the counsel, while I live. Wilt me conduct and guide unto thy glory afterward? Receive me to the Lord. 
Rooms, the prayer meeting on Thursday at the usual time, 7.30pm, to be taken by Mr. Derek McLean. The services next Sabbath at the usual time of 11am and 6.30pm. Uh, the Reverend John Angus Gillis has kindly agreed to take the services. The General Assembly meets uh, tomorrow at Liberton Kirk, Edinburgh. The opening meeting starts at 6pm. And the annual Sabbath School Picnic, organised by Port Mahomac Free Church Continuing, will take place next Saturday, 28th May, at Ardross Community Hall uh, from 2 till 4pm. All are invited and welcome to take part, whatever your age. Please bring enough food for the number of people in your car and it will all be shared out. Drinks and ice cream, etc. will be provided. There's no charge. All day day. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.